Broken 2, Episode 37, Season 6. The title of this podcast is Indiana Jones and the Bull of Persepolis. This is a love letter to a museum. On the south side is the University of Chicago. On campus is a small building called the Oriental Institute. It is located at 1155-1155 East 58th Street. The campus is a gothic echo from yesteryear and certainly worth the time to explore. The new name for the Oriental Institute is the Institute for the Study of Ancient Cultures Museum. The name Oriental Institute was chosen around 1919. It was a different world, and today the word Oriental carries a lot of baggage. Although the new name is accurate, for me it takes away the magic of the place. I'm an Indiana Jones type of guy. The old name had a certain amount of panache. However, the beauty of the museum may eventually override its name, as mundane as it is, and the magic of its exhibits hopefully will rub off on this boring moniker. You'll know what I'm talking about once you laid eyes on it. What's in a name, Shakespeare said, and though I agree a rose would smell the same under any other name, I am firm in my belief that a name carries weight. If they had left the task to me to rename the Oriental Institute, I would have chosen the following. Ready? The Museum of the Ancients. That certainly would have been more fun. Now there's a name. This podcast will consist of audio files I made when I was in Chicago in 2009 on a visit. I had a crash on my computer and lost assorted audio files in some lost nether region of a hard drive. A forensic pathologist or a guy from Geek Squad was able to pull from my shattered data files my attempts of recording my impressions like some on-the-street reporter. All I ask is you take my fumbling attempts as a good try and allow me to interject footnotes that will hopefully provide some insight to what the heck I was doing. This is Rob Kane. Welcome to Ancient Rome Refocused. Right now, I'm sitting next to a monument at the University of Chicago. It's south of downtown. There's a lot going on downtown right now. Oprah, the talk show host, has taken over Michigan Avenue. Say hello to the Black Eyed Peas! 
Imagine walking down Michigan Avenue and suddenly you see hundreds of people preparing to dance in the streets. It was a flash mob where everyone picks up the moves off of YouTube videos. Yes, I really wanted to stay and watch, but I was on a mission. I was going to the Oriental Museum. Do I want to watch Oprah or do I want to look at mummies or various remnants of ancient civilizations? I chose mummies. Ancient civilizations hold more allure for me than black-eyed peas. I walked by hundreds of people, TV cameras, Oprah, jumbotrons, and the group Black Eyed Peas in search of the southbound number six Jackson Park Express bus, which could be picked up at Dearborn and Wacker. But I strongly recommend for you to Uber it. A lot of people visit Chicago, they visit the Loop, they visit the Art Museum, they attend a baseball game, but unfortunately rarely visit this hidden gem. Be different. Dr. Jones would be proud. The last time I visited the Institute was, oh my god, I think it was 1969. It's been quite a while, but it's always sat in my memory. And what we're going to do is we're going to take, go and take a look at it today. So let's go find it. I'm not exactly at the at the uh, at the institute as of yet. Uh, we're going to go see. Uh, I'm going to walk over to the uh, to the front entrance, and then I'll talk to you a little bit more there. As I just turned the corner. It's a mixture of uh, 21st century architecture mixed in, but I think the beauty of it is, is that there's a certain temple-like quality about the buildings, and I think walking around here you'd quite enjoy it. If you're looking for the building, look for something that looks like it was built around the 1920s. The doorway to the Institute is under an arch. And when you walk into the museum, you walk under a very special stone tympanum. Now, it's a carving, and it's symbolic, and it sits over the doorway near the lintel. And carved into the tympanum is an Egyptian figure. On his shoulder hangs a writing kit consisting of a small vase of water and a tube containing reed pens. The West is symbolized by a young man reverently holding in his hands a stone fragment bearing the hieroglyphic words, We behold thy beauty. The figure of the East is flanked by a lion. The figure of the West is accompanied by a bison. Once you walk underneath, you enter an echo chamber. You could say a tomb. Well, you could say that. Of course, they provide a little assistance once you enter the building. It does help to get your bearings. There's nothing like a little computer screen to tell you what you should go see and which way to find the mummies. 
Oriental Institute Museum showcases the history, art, and archaeology of the ancient Near East. The museum exhibits a major collection of artifacts from ancient Egypt, Nubia, Mesopotamia, Persia, Syria, Israel, and Anatolia. Please touch the region you would like to explore. King Tutsun came and ruled a mighty land. Now he ruled for many years, mid laughter, song, and tears. He made a record that will always stand. They opened up his tomb the other day and jumped with glee. They learned a lot of ancient history. It old King Tut, Tut, Tut. This museum has artifacts from digs in Egypt, Israel, Syria, Turkey, Iraq, and Iran. Notable works in the collection include the Makedo ivories, treasures from Persepolis, that's the old Persian capital, a collection of Luristan bronzes, a colossus 40-ton human-headed winged bull from the capital of Sargon II, and a monumental statue of King Tutankhamun. His tomb inside was tears, was full of souvenirs. He must have traveled greatly in his time. The gold and silverware that they found hidden there was from hotels of every land and clime. Standing inside the Oriental Museum, I can imagine that Indiana Jones would have an office. The interior design is colorful and highly detailed in its ornamentation. It feels like the past, how they used to make buildings in the past. This is not surprising that it has that kind of vibe. Originally, it was a gift of John D. Rockefeller Jr., which was constructed in 1930, providing five museum galleries, a lecture hall, two floors of offices, a library, and extensive laboratories. The interior design is Art Deco. This type of design is never mundane. No unimaginative rooms, no door and hallways, gray and lifeless like a police station in an urban setting. Walls and doors and windows are decorated with elements of Middle Eastern designs. It's steampunk, it's retro, it's beautifully retro, tasteful and at the same time floral. The current symbol of the new Institute for the Study of Ancient Cultures is the lotus flower that can be seen in many motif designs about the museum. The interior is small, but it is manageable. Come at the right time, it is possible to have an exhibit all to yourself. In this place, you can hear your own thoughts. If a door closes, the sound echoes off the walls, but quickly disappears in the distance. The odds are good you can wander throughout the place without being pushed aside or having to wait for someone else to move on. You can take your time here, wander and ponder, as you peek through glass at a scrap of papyri of a contract made with a spouse or a strike conducted in an ancient epoch with the demands for better food. 
You can be awed by massive exhibits or be awed once again by delicate manufacturing of items that can sit in the palm of your hand. You can imagine, even for just a moment, that the rooms are a movie set for Indiana Jones' next adventure. You can imagine Jones walking through the hallways, staring at the exhibits, making notes. This place, this unique place, should be the opening shots of a movie, and I would name it Indiana Jones and the Bull of Persepolis. Have you ever had a memory that you wondered if it was real or just a dream? I have. So have you. So have many others. But I somehow think that this was real because it's still vivid. I remember walking through the Oriental Museum with my mother. There were exhibits with information posted on the wall. I can't remember where I saw it. I can't remember the exact wording of the translated writing that caught my eye. All I remember was the meaning, the intent. It was supposed to be thousands of years old, something that was written in the BCE before the Common Era. I can't say for sure of the author, the people, the year, the empire, or the times. It was something written back in antiquity. I want to say Syrian, Hittite, or Babylonian, but I could be wildly off. It was a poem, maybe a poem, certainly not a rhyming poem, of a boy that worries about dying. He goes to his mother and tells of the fear that he has, the fear that he has of death. She tells him to live his life to smell the flowers, to drink, and to dance. Like I said, not the exact wording, but that's the gist. He goes to his father and tells him that he fears death. He tells him death will be coming soon enough. He tells him to drink, to love women, to enjoy what life has given him. I don't remember how the poem ends. I remember telling my mother about it. She was standing right next to me when I read the text. I pointed at it and said, Mom, look at this. She leaned over and read it silently to herself. Mom, I said, what do you think? She looked at me and asked what I wanted for my birthday.
mommy. This is Chicago, basically did a CT scan and uh, it revealed a larger than usual embalming incision that reached from the bottom of the ridgecage to the top of the pelvis. At this time, embalmed organs were replaced in the abdomen and thorax rather than being entombed in separate jars. Uh, according to the CT scan, the heart is not visible and the cranium is partially filled with resin. Uh, I guess everything to observe the body, but the resin was poured into the cranium while the corpse was on its back, for the resin hardened in the back of the skull. Relatively small man. Smaller, four feet two. The important thing is, is that you don't get to, I don't know, intellectual about this. You're looking at a man who lived and breathed and walked the face of the earth fourth century before Christ. This is a man who loved and ate and philosophized about the world. And now he lies in a glass case the University of Chicago halfway across the world. Time has a funny way of playing tricks on me. Upon graduating from eighth grade, I was asked what I would like to do in celebration of this great event. I could have chosen to go to a movie or invite someone over to have my dad drive us for an afternoon of mini golf. But I told my parents that I wanted to go see mummies. So after church, while still on my Sunday best, Mom, Dad, and I drove over to the Oriental Institute. That is where the mummies hang out. I don't remember much, but I remember the mummy's face. A man's face behind glass, laid out as if in bed, like a man in a light sleep. Well, not actually light. If you refer to a mummy, it has to be the deepest sleep possible. But that time holds a special place for me. It always will, especially the first time you look into a mummy's face. The skin was black. The body looked drained. The cheekbones were high. The outer layers of the skin gave the impression of black construction paper. And what does a 13-year-old kid know of death? Well, at that time, not much. Not this particular suburban kid. I was told this man was old. And what is that to a 13-year-old boy? And then a strange, irrational thought hit me. As I stared into the mummy's face, I wondered what would happen if the mummy opened its eyes. I have strange advice for parents. To open your kid's eyes to the world and the incomprehensible. Take him or her to look into a mummy's face. The Institute has 89 mummies, some on display, some not. Mummified animals, humans, some intact, and assorted spare parts of hands, feet, and heads. Look, I don't mean to go all Edgar Allan Poe on you, but there's even a monkey's paw. It is easy to believe in fate in a place filled with the accoutrement of past lives and death itself. Oh,
but was just a nut as you can see. Still proud was touch about his beach nut ancestry. A thousand girls would dance each day with lots of hip 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 hooray. And old King Tut 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 King Tutty's day. Walking through the Institute, I did not expect to come across the subject of ventriloquism. And ventriloquism is not new. And I'm going to let you have a secret. No one is really able to throw their voice. It's more of an optical illusion, a trick of the brain. Let's use the popular ventriloquist Jeff Dunham as an example. A puppet stands on a chair next to Jeff. He moves erratically, and the mouth opens up three to four times larger than Mr. Dunham's, who keeps his lips as tight as possible. In a theater, you can't miss Peanut. Peanut is called a hyperactive, purple-skinned woozle with white hair. Woozle, W-O-O-Z-L-E. Dunham wears dark clothes while he's on the stage. Dunham is almost frozen. The puppet is the one that's erratic, throwing its head back, laughing hysterically. Please help me welcome my buddy, Peanut. How you doing, Peanut? Doing pretty good. How about you? I'm fine. That's good. That's good. That's good. So you like it here? Oh, I love being in D.C. D.C. It's great. And I love this theater, the Warner, the Warner Theater. It's fantastic. They have the cool website, right? They got a link to our website, which is JeffDunham.com. And I think that pulled it. I think that peanuts will stop me. What's the this day? What's that? But what? What <laughs> the hell is wrong with you? We cannot talk at the same time. I talk, you talk, I talk, you talk. That's it! Focus. <laughs> I am so sick of this crap. I have tried going solo. What happened? Kept falling off this freaking thing and I didn't... The human mind, even when it sees a glitch, will work to make sense of it. Making sense of unusual patterns leads to illusions. The human mind must make a connection. If Peanut has a large flapping mouth, the sound must be coming from Peanut. Sound and movement is a connection that we take for granted. Seeing is believing. Now the museum, the Institute, brings up the subject of religious ventriloquism. In the museum sits the falcon god Horus, the most ancient of gods. It has a gold beak, but its overall design looks suspiciously like the Maltese falcon. What is the last line of the Bogart movie? The police detective picks up the Maltese falcon and asks Harry Spade a question. What is this? Bogart looks haunted and utters the last line of the movie. The stuff that dreams are made of. So, what is a hawk doing in ancient Egyptian religion in a temple 
What's up with that? Well, upon examination, a narrow passage from the base of the statue to the head may have been used for the insertion of cords to manipulate the beak. It is a talking ventriloquist dummy with a moving gold beak that speaks to the supplicant. This building that you stand in is filled with echoes. It's easy to hear whispering. Now imagine you stand in an ancient temple, a room heavy with incense, and words you are longing to hear comes from a golden moving beak. The hawk said rain is coming, and you believe him. The hawk, god Horus, said that your first child shall survive childbirth, and you believe him. Sound and movement is a connection we take for granted. side of Chicago, south side, south side more likely, uh, you can see uh, tombstones with people with uh, pictures of what the person looked in life on the tombstone. Well, the ancients were no different. I'm looking at a face that was painted on a coffin, uh, pigment on wood. Uh, um, they found it in Luxor. It's a, a wonderfully rendered picture of a young man who died early. And you can see the hair on his face, his hair is curly, he's, he's handsome, he has large lips, he's dressed well. It, uh, it is really an exquisite piece of artwork. Uh, it seems that during that time period that they painted faces on, on coffins to preserve the identity of the deceased so that the soul would recognize the body as it returned to the tomb each evening. So as the uh, soul went wandering, he'd, uh, they would look at the coffins and identify where he's supposed to rest. I think, as strange as it sounds, I think if you try Googling these uh, face coffins, some of them are beautiful and you can fall in love with the type of artwork that you can see on these uh, interesting examples of the past and those who have passed on. What I call face coffins, the more accurate name is Fayum mummy portraits. They are naturalistic painted portraits of the deceased completed on wooden boards that are attached to upper-class mummies from Roman Egypt. The paintings are quite good, and the deceased are lovely in their portrayals. They are highly praised and can be found in collections in the Louvre, Berlin, and the Metropolitan Museum in New York. The paintings are well-preserved, 
the colors are unfaded by time, attributed to the hot Egyptian climate. The majority of the portraits are painted on panels made from hardwoods like oak, sycamore, cedar, and cypress. After graduating from college, I was sent to a job in a small factory on the south side of Oak Park, Illinois. It was right by the Eisenhower Expressway. At the time, I wasn't really sure what I was getting into, but I quickly found out. It was related to the mortuary business. Now, being that I had a degree in communication design at the time, it was thought that this particular job would be a good fit. There was about 30, 20-year-olds, including myself, all seated at long tables. Each station had what is known as an airbrush. It has the look and feel of a pen and is attached to a paint source. It is a method of shooting out color in a mist. You, you may have seen people using spray cans of various colors to create works of art. It's all very similar, and one of the most famous spray can artists is a mysterious person who keeps his identity hidden, named with the odd moniker Banksy. His work pops up in London. And though it, it is considered graffiti, where the perpetrator can get community service, or even imprisonment, his work is actually quite revered. Banksy has achieved cult status and is treated with a sort of reverence and is sought out by art collectors. Let's just say that when confronted by an airbrush, it was a totally new experience for me. What's more, in front of me were several oval, flat, ceramic images of deceased individuals. The portrait, I imagine, was copied onto the surface using some photographic technique. It was from there I was told to try my hand at it. My job was to paint the face. In other words, bring life to the dead. My first attempts blotted out several dearly departed with puddles of pink paint, which was intended to give their cheeks a healthy glow. And if I was good at it, and I was not good at it, the image would be sold to the family and secured to the tombstone. Frankly, I'd never seen something like this before. I was in my twenties. I knew what tombstones were, but death had yet caught up to my family and friends. In the meantime, it has. But this practice struck me at the time as slightly creepy. Today, I kind of liked the idea. But uh, once lunch was called, I gave my apologies to the supervisor and headed for the door. Frankly, I should have stayed. They seemed rather accommodating, and if they were willing to give me some time to catch up to the others, I might have become good at it. Knowing how to use an airbrush might have been fun. The takeaway is this. How we remember the dead is not new. 
as it says in the Bible, there is no new thing under the sun. I once knew a private detective. He told me once, over a beer, that if his job was anything like what was portrayed on the Rockford Files, a popular TV show in the 70s, he would quit immediately. Jim Rockford was shot at, chased, and beat up on a regular basis. My friend's life was more, as he described, watching doors and checking receipts. Now, what could an archaeologist's life be like? I've known two who worked in that profession. From what I can see, the complaints were as follows. Loneliness, bad health, bad knees, and sunburn. One of them quit the profession because he wanted to have a family. The other died of ill health. I had several phone calls with him before he passed away. He was damn interesting and was knowledgeable as all get out. I don't know if he was ever chased by natives to a waiting amphibious plane or ran for his life before a rolling boulder, i.e. Indiana Jones, but he certainly lived his life to the fullest. His job may have had him digging in the ground, and from that ground came knowledge. It's a cool job, like telling someone at a party that you're a detective. In a dead silence, the huge lid, weighing over a ton and a quarter, was raised from its bed. Light shone into the sarcophagus. The contents were completely covered by linen shrouds. But as the last shroud was rolled back, a gasp of wonderment escaped our lips. So gorgeous was the sight that met our eyes. A golden effigy of the young king of magnificent workmanship filled the whole of the interior. The voice was Howard Carter, the man who found the tomb of King Tut. He trained as an artist, worked as a draftsman, and was appointed as an inspector for the Egyptian Antiquities Service. You have to understand the context. Carter may not have had the education of those who worked in his field, but he could draw and draft out what he saw. And this was a world where photography was just beginning to be seen as a scientific tool. The artist's eye in his profession was valuable. Carter lost his position in the Egyptian Antiquities section, which was overseen by the French, by the way, when he defended Egyptian guards against the insults and the improprieties shown by drunken French tourists. From there, he sold art and antiquities to wealthy English people and thus 
make connections with Lord Carnarvon, who was able to fund many of Carter's digs. The Tut discovery was at the end of a ten-year search. Twenty thousand tons of dirt and rubble were removed by Egyptian workers all by hand. The last place you look is always where the other shoe was waiting for you all along. But they did find the tomb. Carter looked and found a crypt that had not been opened for 30 centuries. Carter wrote and lectured extensively about his find. He died famous and wealthy, but no British honors were given to this tenacious man. He was held in esteem by the public, but in an age of class system, in an age where a man was not expected to shine when they come from a small English village of Swapham, in an age having a temper with your betters, so to speak, was just not done. Maybe awards were saved for the Cambridge and Oxford graduates. Indiana Jones may have had to suffer poison darts and Nazis, but Carter lived in a world of no air conditioning, no emails, no reliable air travel, and no antibiotics, and was still able to bring up from the earth a piece of history that still travels around the world to be shown at sold-out public events. Maybe this profession is worth the discomfort. At the beginning of this podcast, I said this was a love letter to a museum. Now the Institute for the Study of Ancient Cultures shall take up the mantle to feed our imaginations. I've gone all nostalgic on you, seeing it emotionally from a child's eye. A warning. Once you've seen a papyrus fragment of Homer's Iliad, you are swept into the museum's allure. Once you see the winged bull, there is no going back. You are in love. <laughs>